It is Wednesday, February 14th. Hey, happy Valentine's Day. This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk with Black Lives Matter activist and Pod Save the People host DeRay McKesson about his ongoing fight against police killings and about racism under the Trump administration. So there are a lot of people who think that the history of injustice in this country began with the Muslim ban, that they're like, wow, look at this. Look at the government doing bad things to people. And it's like people of color have been like, well, you know, this has been bad for a long time. Then we're joined again by Chad Bolt. He is Indivisible's senior policy manager in Washington, D.C., and we talk about Trump's infrastructure plan. Hey, it's finally infrastructure week and about the particulars of his proposed budget. It breaks Trump's promise not to touch Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. Not that broken promises should surprise any of us. All that and our dose of good news. Jeray McKesson is a civil rights activist who is a key figure in the creation of the Black Lives Matter movement. He's the co-founder of Campaign Zero, which is dedicated to ending police violence. And he is also the host of the crooked media podcast, Pod Save the People. I spoke with DeRay about his background growing up in Baltimore. He started out as an organizer when he was still in his teens. And I asked him if he always had a sense of what he ultimately wanted to do. You know, I was an organizer when I was much younger, um, and I knew that I wanted to to do something that would make an impact, and that's how I would have described it when I was younger. You know, I was in student government from sixth grade to senior year in college, and and that was transformative in so many ways. The first time that I ever learned how to uh, lead and what it meant to take feedback and be led, uh, and that changed a lot in my life, and I think organizing was a natural extension. But really, becoming a teacher was like probably the thing that changed everything for me. It was the first time I'd ever done direct service. It was the first time that I'd ever sort of seen inequity that wasn't just the inequity that I faced every day, but like saw it at scale. And that was huge. So when I when I thought about even going to Ferguson, I was going because I like because they killed a kid, right? And I made a commitment to kids as a teacher and as an after school provider and somebody who worked in school systems. And I knew I needed to show up, even if it was just for a couple of days. And a couple of days turned into, what, four years. So, yeah. So here we are. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, like you say, you know, you, you were a teacher. You, I know that you worked uh, in Harlem and then you ultimately wound up in the Minneapolis school system, public school system uh, as an administrator in 2014. And that was when you decided to quit during the, uh, the what was happening in Ferguson. You drove to St. Louis to join the protest full time, which is like a, just a huge life altering move. But, you know, I'm curious when you got to the scene, when you first got there, I'm curious to know what it was like. Did you have a sense at the time that what was happening in Ferguson was historic? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I I didn't know anybody in the city of Missouri. So I put a Facebook message up that said, hey, like I'm going to Ferguson. If you know anybody who is in uh, is in town who I can sleep on their couch. Let me know. And lo and behold, I, I like people connected me to Brittany, and Brittany was incredible. Still one of my closest friends. Talk to Brittany every day. And she's on the show on on Pod Save she's the People. On Pod Brittany Packnett yep. is who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, she's incredible. So I knew. Her, so I met her very very early. But actually, she, she she didn't trust. Like she didn't know me, so I couldn't stay on her couch. She like found somebody else's couch I could stay on, which is actually really funny. <laughs> we joke about it now. So that was sort of the the very beginning, but. But early on, like Twitter was really the way that we organized. So I just was searching the hashtags, trying to figure out like where the meetups were and like where I should go to if I want to volunteer to to like make sandwiches and stuff like that. And like that was really the beginning. And there was such an incredible sense of community, an incredible sense of everybody coming together. And like that was what. 
that was what the beginning was. I think that very quickly we realized that this was going to take like an, a lot of energy and planning and like we didn't have a, a playbook, right? Like we were all sort of using our best experiences and our best sort of knowledge up to then to, to really like make it work. And we did, you know, that was it. Yeah. And you've talked in interviews about how there really wasn't like a titular head there when you arrived. There wasn't uh, anybody who was kind of uh, fronting the movement. It was really a a grassroots effort. Um, And it really did kind of come together uh, primarily through social media, right? Yeah. So there's still not like a a titular head. You know, there were so many people who had important roles. So I had an important role on Twitter and there were a set of us. There were people like Keith who had an important role with the bail fund. If you got arrested, he helped manage the process that got you out. There were the live streamers. There were the people like Tef who who led the the chants in the street. Like there were so many people. It was an ecosystem of people doing incredible work. And it took all of us uh, working in concert. And the beautiful thing was that like there wasn't a committee. There wasn't like a meeting every night. But we all knew each other. So something happened. I get a text or a call that's like, DeRay, I need you to be here. And like, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get the word out about this. And I'm like, cool, I got you. And if they needed like somebody to help lead the actual sort of march, then somebody else would call and be like, hey, do you know somebody that or like I'd call and And we all just worked together to move it and to make it work. And it was beautiful to see the difference between like needing an organization and just having really strong infrastructure. And I think that what we saw and I wouldn't have believed it if I didn't see it with my own eyes, like we saw the power of an incredible infrastructure to make change across the world. Yeah, infrastructure is enormously important. I think we're seeing that in Indivisible as well, and I think that's a reason why it seems to be enduring thus far. Uh, and, and so Black Lives Matter started in 2014, and now it's three and a half years later. I'm curious as to how you see the movement evolving. Uh, You've pointed out that the civil rights movement, as we now look back on it, was 10 years in the making. So in light of that, how do you assess Black Lives Matter at this point in 2018? Yeah, I think you're right that like we know that the service movement was a decade long worth of activism, right? And we're sort of in year three, four of since the protest started. So I think the beginning was like people processing, right? People needing to just figure out what was going on and understand it better. It's year two was sort of people having better language to describe what was happening. And I think about year three, four is us really pivoting to like, what does systemic change look like? Like, how do we actually change systems and structures that do to, to do right by people? That that has to be a part of what the work looks like. So you see incredible organizers in Austin getting the entire Austin City Council to vote against a police union contract. We've never seen that before. You see people organizing to close jails. You see people fighting contracts at the city level. You see people running for office who never would have considered it before. And that is, it's a combination of those things that creates an ecosystem of actions that really, really moves the needle. Well, one of the things that came out of Black Lives Matter uh, that is really making an impact is Campaign Zero, which I mentioned in the the intro. This is an organization that is dedicated to ending police violence, uh, and it proposes 10 policies for police reform. And one of the proposals addresses something that is very concerning to most people, uh, and that is that there have been almost no successful prosecutions of police. Uh, And so Campaign Zero is asking for independent investigations and uh, prosecutions of shootings by police. Can you talk specifically about how that would work on a policy level? Yeah, so that's really tied to another part of the the project that we launched in Campaign Zero that's about police union contracts. So one of the things about the police is that they, they just have a different set of of rules that govern them. And and the thing about it is that they're the last sort of holdout in public service where the idea of accountability seems to be an attack on 
uh, the institution and a threat to public safety is how they spin it. So with doctors, you know, doctors used to be able to like make potions up in the back of a closet and give them to people <laughs> yeah. and, and like they could do it. And, and quickly people realized that that wasn't in the interest of public safety, right? That like there right. needed to be rules and standards. That teachers, you know, a century ago used to be able to just decide what they wanted to teach when they wanted to teach. And sometimes that worked out and sometimes that was sort of a nightmare, right? And people realized that that wasn't a good thing. So what they did was that they came up with standards and in a set of metrics around like what it means, right? And with the police is like still, the moment that you talk about any sense of accountability or standards, people, the police start to say that you are threatening public safety. And what we believe is that if the police have to exist at all, that like there at least have to be rules. So when you think about the fact that none of them are held accountable, you look at police union contracts where they have clauses that say things like, there are cities across the country where the negative discipline, like any discipline they get, gets deleted from their employee files every two or five years, right? Mm. That doesn't make sense. Or like um, in Austin, the police get access to all the investigation material before they can be interrogated. That doesn't make any sense, right? Like, what does that mean? Uh, the standard of proof at the federal level for uh, civil rights violations requires that they like demonstrate malicious like intent on the front end. And it's just like an impossible standard to meet. And we could change the standard that would also hold them accountable for, accountable for just like wanton violence, right? That like, that has to be a part of how we think about this. And we can't just excuse whatever the police do simply in the name of public safety. You think about the trial in Baltimore that just happened. It came out in testimony that there was a guy who was killed not too long ago. And on the stand, the police officer said that he was with the guy who killed him, like he was with the police officer who shot. And the only reason he shot him is that he just didn't feel like running. And you're like, that is crazy, right? Like, that's like a wild thing. And there's no amount of money that can bring that guy back just because a police officer didn't feel like running. Yeah, uh, good God. And and then all too often in so many other cases, uh, you see an officer's defense is that he or she had a reason to fear for their safety, which is just such a, a low bar legally. Yeah, and it, it, not only legally, but it's also incredibly low bar um, in society that like you think about the number of TV shows or movies or anything that you've seen that just justify the violence by the police uh, in the name of public safety. So you look at bad boys, like great, everybody loved it. Uh, you think about how many people are like shot or just like how many crowds they shot into or like how much property was damaged in the name of finding the bad guy. Like that's just sort of a wild thing, but that is every action movie with the police in it. The only sort of things with the police in it where there's not sort of random violence is, uh, is comedies, right? Like Caddyshack, yeah. things like that. Uh, but it's like this, we, we've sort of seeded this idea that the police can just like do whatever they want. And like, that is just so nuts. Well, you know, I should mention that there's a ballot initiative here in Washington called Deescalate Washington that just qualified for the November ballot. And it includes a number of the platforms uh, from Campaign Zero, like community oversight, more training and things like that. And uh, it's it's looking pretty hopeful uh, in terms of support for the fall ballot. You know, uh, something else that I wanted to ask you about just sort of in terms of narrative, narratives that support this more aggressive policing. Um, Adam Gottnick uh, wrote in The New Yorker uh, recently about the decline in violent crime in urban centers, but that Trump and well, Jeff Sessions in particular still use that to frighten people and to justify overly aggressive policing. Is there any, in your mind, is there any way to effectively fight back against this narrative? 
Yeah, I think, the, I think the cities and states actually have the most power to fight back against all of these narratives by just showing that we don't have to do business this way. The majority of people in prison and in jail are actually at the city and, and state level. They're not at the federal level. So uh, while we're still working on the on the Justice Department and getting control of Congress, like states and cities have a huge ability to to like change not only the narrative, but the reality for people. Yeah. Well, I want to shift over and talk about your show, uh, Pod Save the People. It is part of the Crooked Media family, which was started by the guys who do Pod Save America. It's a really great show, man. And, and you, have, uh, you have a particular approach, which is less about explaining issues and more just about having a dialogue with people. Uh, talk a little bit about how you hit on this particular approach for the podcast. You know, I have a big platform on Twitter, and Twitter has always been really important to me as a platform, but I wanted to figure out a way that people could learn. I didn't think that people were learning on Twitter, so I wanted to figure that out. And I started the podcast because I wanted to have conversations that allow people to like think about issues deeply. I could get uh, leaders of, of certain institutions, I could get political leaders to come on and just like explain their position in a way that like, I just, that, that Twitter just wasn't the place to do that well. Yeah. Uh, so it's been really important, and I got, I got three of my really good friends, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, to come and be able to talk about the news because I wanted to talk about things that weren't just Trump, right? That like Trump's in the news every day and da-da-da, but wanted to talk about all the other things. Yeah, you talk about a lot of things that fly under the radar for a lot of people. Yeah, I wanted to, yeah, so we don't really talk about Trump. I wanted to talk about everything else. So we sort of only talk about things that are really important, but you probably haven't heard on the nightly news. And then in your interview section, you talk to a wide variety of people, uh, everybody from John Legend to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand to even Edward Snowden. Uh, I got a lot out of your recent conversation with Reza Aslan, uh, particularly his thoughts on Christianity and the modern GOP and about how most Republicans would probably hate the historical Jesus. Uh, But it's a really wide variety of people that you talk with. How do you go about choosing your guests? Yeah, it's really just things that I'm curious about. So like, you know, I wanted to, I've wanted to do an episode on food stamps for a long time. We just like, have been trying to find the right people and I've had great prep calls and now food stamps in the news, but it's been an issue for the past, you know, year or two. Uh, we did an issue, we did an episode on foster care cause I like really cared about foster care. So it's things that I'm personally curious about, which makes mm. it work really well. Well, and also you're a really solid interviewer. You, you ask great insightful questions of your guests. And I, I as, as a fellow interviewer, I'm, I'm wondering, is that something that came naturally? Did you have a learning curve there? I think that I just like wanted to, it's, I want to, I'm like really asking the questions and because I'm not doing the prep with them. The first time I'm talking to them is when we're recording. So I'm like really curious. I'm like, I'm learning. So the Reza conversation, like, you know, I was, he said something, I'm like, wow, like let's push on that. Cause like, I want to yeah. learn that a little bit better. I want to like talk about that a little bit more. And like, so it is this natural. I'm just trying to like understand myself. You know, one of the things that your show does exceptionally well is that it, talks about issues of race. Uh, And I want to get your take on how Trump has emboldened hate groups and racism, particularly with his both sides comment after the events in Charlottesville. People of color have always known that these groups and these attitudes are out there. I'm wondering, are white people just becoming more aware of all of this now under Trump? Yeah, so there are a lot of people who think that the history of injustice in this country began with the Muslim ban, that they're like, wow, look at this, look at the government doing bad things to people. And it's like people of color have been like, well, you know, this has been bad for a long time. So I do think that that awareness is new. It's good that people get it now. Uh, I'm hopeful that the awareness sort of stays, though, after Trump. I'm nervous about that, that like it's 
you know, he's distributing the pain all over the place. So people sort of have to pay attention. But when the pain was just, just really targeted towards people of color, it wasn't that same sort of focus. So I'm hopeful uh, that that actually sort of lasts post Trump. Well, then, so what can we do in your mind to keep that uh, consciousness going post Trump? And this is assuming that there will be a post Trump period. And we certainly hope there will be. In your mind, how do we keep that awareness going? Yeah, I don't know. I I think that we'll figure it out. I don't know. Like, I, if I had the answer, I think I'd be a you know savant. I think that, <laughs> uh, we've we've not been in a position before where white people like the more white people uh, now care about these issues and are ready to do something than ever before. So we don't have a great benchmark. Um, so I don't know. I think I would like to believe that we'll just need to keep focus on the structural stuff and like help people uh, have language and that we like help people realize that this stuff is intentional and, and like those things I think matter, that the awareness will be big and, uh, and that hopefully that all these new people running for positions, like we'll just have a framework of equity and justice. So like when Trump is gone, they'll still be in these positions and be able to do things that are right. Like I'm hopeful about that, but uh, you know, time will tell, uh, you know, it shouldn't slow down the work and, and like we need to keep pressing forward, but I don't, I don't know how to guarantee it. I think that like we keep pressing and, and like help make people aware of just how intentional and structural this stuff is. So you bring up people running for office and that is a a positive development, a a silver lining, if you will, out of all of this, which is that we are seeing more women and more people of color running for office and winning office uh, than ever before. I mean, look at what happened in the uh, Virginia House of Delegates. It really speaks to the fact that moving forward, we may have coming out of this a much more representative government. Yeah, we never think about that. We I never use the language of like silver lining. I never think about any of this as positive. Like, I worry that that language like that actually glorifies the trauma that sort of is like, well, well, there's trauma and like there's a good thing that came out of it. And like, I never want to feed into that. I think the reality is that people have responded in a way that will hopefully help redefine power. And, and that in and of itself is a good thing, born of a bad thing. Um, but it is... But I'm mindful that like people shouldn't have to wake up every day and like respond to trauma. That that shouldn't be the world that we live in, and and like I'm I, that is really important to me. I do think that there's like incredible organizing happening, and and like it has been happening for a long time, but it's happening on a scale that we've not seen before, and like that is really powerful. The question is like, will it lead to symbolic? wins or will it lead to structural wins, right? And I think that time will tell about the structural stuff, that the structural stuff is actually what changes the way people interact with like the world. The symbolic stuff changes the way people think about the world. Both are important. Uh, one is long-lasting and one is not. So, so you know, we're always trying to get to the structural. Like, how do we do that without glorifying the fact that people have to fight for their lives in the first place? You generally seem like a pretty upbeat person, uh, at least on the show and on social media. But I, I'm wondering, you know, well, we're all human. D- does it ever get to you? Is there ever a moment where you're just like, you just want to kind of step away, hang it all up? You know, I, I think about hope is the idea that our tomorrows can be better than our today's. So I never lose hope. I like, I, I think that we can definitely get out of this. There are definitely days where I'm like, what is going on, right? Like, why is it so bad? Or like, why don't people know this? Or like, why haven't we figured out an easier way to do that? So I, I, I'm there more often um, than I ever lose hope. I don't really lose hope. And I think that part of that comes from two things. One is like, I used to be a teacher in, in East New York, Brooklyn, and I think about all those incredible kids I taught who are now old, older. They were 11 when I knew them. And 
Um, and they just deserve a better world. So like whatever I can do, like I'm fighting for them every day. And the second is, you know, being in the street with so many people, like I just saw people like find their power and be incredible. And like, they give me this immense sort of like belief that we can figure it out, you know? Yeah. Well, that actually gives me hope. Uh, and yeah, it, it really does make a difference to be in this fight together with people. Uh, so before we go, I want to mention that uh, you have a live recording of Pod Save the People coming up on February 18th at the Lincoln Theater in D.C. So uh, so tell us about the show. Yeah. So we're having Ben Jealous, who's running for uh, Governor of Maryland. And we also have Wes Lowry, who's a writer with The Washington Post. It'll be our first live show. We have some surprises up our sleeves. And I'm excited for people to experience it. I'm really like hopeful. And it's the first one. We'll be doing a live show in New York a little bit later, but this is our first uh, big show. Excellent, man. Well, congratulations. We have a ton of listeners in the D.C. area, and uh, guys there, I will have a link up to info on the event on the SoundCloud page and also at indivisiblepodcast.org. I should also mention that you're going to be speaking at Whitman College in Walla Walla on the 21st, and uh, likewise, I will have info about that up for everybody to check out. But Dre McKesson, thank you so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Chad Bolt is the senior policy manager for Indivisible, and we are checking in with him this week to talk about Trump's infrastructure plan and about his proposed budget. Uh, Chad Bolt, thank you as always for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. So I want to start by talking about the infrastructure, uh, quote unquote, plan, because um, I think this hasn't gotten the same fanfare as the budget. But you've certainly shown a light on it. Uh, You have said that while Trump has asserted that this will be one trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, that it's actually only 200 billion dollars in federal spending. And the White House expects the states to make up the rest in tax increases. Surprise. So uh, so walk us through that. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. When he first started talking about this, it was a, a quote trillion dollar plan. It's now ticked up to a trillion and a half dollars. Um, again, with really like no basis for understanding how he expects a $200 billion federal investment to generate another $850 billion in either private or state and local funds. Um, So the very first thing to understand about his plan is that when he talks about it as a trillion and a half dollar investment, that's just not what it is. It's $200 billion in federal funding that, by the way, and this is really important, is offset So that means $200 billion in cuts to other programs, Mm. including, paradoxically, other infrastructure programs. So This sounds a lot like the way that he likes to structure his business deals, doesn't it? (laughs) That's exactly right. Um, You know, he's essentially taking um, existing infrastructure dollars and sort of repackaging them in a way that says, look, I have a shiny new infrastructure plan. Um, but it's in many ways, no new money at all, um, for infrastructure, which is why, uh, many, many of us, including Indivisible and the millions of jobs coalition of which we're a part have been calling it an infrastructure scam. Right, right, Um, right. And that became, you know, ever more evident when he finally released, um, released the plan on Monday, the same day that he put out his president's budget. And the two are very much related. Um, which we can talk more about. 
Um, well, you've you voiced some concern, and we will get to that in just a second. Um, and you touched on this just a second ago. You, you voiced concern about the way that how this could be financed would be problematic for taxpayers and would reward Wall Street. Um, talk about that in detail a little bit, if you can. Sure. So it encourages uh, states and local governments to borrow using private equity, and that's through um, a series of, of tax credits and other ways. Um, but it's more expensive to borrow um, using private dollars than it is to borrow using uh, municipal bonds on which the interest rate is lower and less expensive to pay back. But of course, if you did it that way, then uh, a lot of Trump's donors and cronies uh, wouldn't get their percentage. Well, that's exactly right. And so it's, um, you know, folks get whacked on this, uh, not one, but in two ways. And one is that first taxpayer dollars are spent through tax credits to incentivize this private investment. And then the, the private investor comes along and either like makes repairs to the highway or, or, um, you know, builds out a couple stations on a light rail or whatever, and then slaps tolls on it. And then the taxpayer has to pay again, this time in tolls. Right. The underlying problem with our infrastructure, and just to back up a second, I think everyone agrees that our nation's infrastructure needs to be addressed in a series. It is a problem uh, the way our infrastructure is aging and it's urgent. Um, But the problem is a lack of financial investment in fixing it. Um, It's not, you know, the permitting process. A lot of Trump's infrastructure plan is in the name of, quote, streamlining. But the permitting process is not the problem with our infrastructure. It's a lack of financial investment. but the answer to that is not to have private interests come in, privatize our infrastructure assets, and then slap user fees on them so that they can recoup their investment. Mm-hmm. We need actual federal investment in, um, in in making our infrastructure better. And by the way, that would create good jobs in the process. Absolutely. And I want to get to what the Democratic uh, House bill is proposing uh, because jobs, you know, job creation is is extraordinarily important and we don't want to overlook that. Uh, before we move on to that, though, um, another thing that you mentioned is that this plan could be damaging to the environment. I mean, I think it's hard uh, not to imagine a Trump federal government uh, disregarding <laughs> environmental standards here. So talk yeah. about that a little bit. Yeah. So uh, as I as I said, a lot of the plan is about, uh, quote, streamlining, um, you know, the permitting process. But what that really means is that uh, it'll just undermine current environmental protections that are in place um, to protect protect fragile ecosystems when uh, infrastructure projects get underway. Um, You know, an example of this is the quote NEPA process, and in this moment, I, I'm I admit I forget I'm standing I'm forgetting what the letters N E P A stand for, but we can Google um, it. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it is the thanks. It is the um, it is sort of the core um, environmental protection law that's that affects um, the building of infrastructure projects, and uh, many of the of the planks in Trump's infrastructure plan would roll back or significantly weaken um, the steps um, and the protections in place through the NEPA law um, that ensure that like streams aren't getting like wastewater dumped into them or that um, utilities are moved in a safe way. 
et cetera. Um, and it, by the way, it's not just environmental protections that are undermined. It's also key protections for workers that make sure that um, workers on infrastructure construction sites have a safe working environment and uh, that they are paid fairly. Um, those would all also be undermined or states would be given the flexibility to undermine them uh, in the name of streamlining the process again. Right. So infrastructure scam indeed. So uh, so we definitely know what's on the table here. So let's talk about the plan for pushing back. Um, one of the things that the Indivisible website talks about is controlling the narrative on this. And I, I find that intriguing because this is one of the first times that I have seen that come up uh, from Indivisible. Talk about how we do that. Sure. So um, just to think back for a second on uh, our victory on Trump care and then eventually how painful we made the tax bill for Republicans was a key ingredient to our success there was a united Democratic front. Right. We had total unity among Democrats. Um, you know, w back when Trump was first inaugurated, there was a thinking that like ACA was dead and, and that Democrats might even support some sort of ACA repeal. And certainly when we started the tax bill, um, there was a thinking that the Democrats, that was something that Democrats could get on board with, that there might be bipartisan support to do that. Um, and what really helped us uh, is that that turned out not to be the case. Democrats were totally united against it. So I think one of the key um, pillars of a victory on infrastructure to define what success would look like is to have Democrats um, unite around not just opposing a Trump infrastructure plan, but actually what is a good affirmative vision for for what a real infrastructure plan would look like. Huh. Well, so we'll outline that for us. What does it look like? So um, the resolution basically is a statement of principles um, from Democrats. Again, you were talking about the narrative here. Um, it's not just that we are opposed to the Trump infrastructure plan. Um, but we have a set of principles that we know would make a good, meaningful infrastructure plan that actually is what the country needs um, and that we can measure the Trump plan against uh, and, and note the ways the Trump plan falls short. Right. So that affirmative vision, uh, for me, it really boils down to, to four points. One is that it makes a meaningful, robust investment in our infrastructure. It's not gimmicks around public-private partnerships or, or stealing from one infrastructure pot of money and giving to another or um, you know, coercing states into raising state and local taxes um, to fund infrastructure. It's actually putting federal dollars where it matters. Um, so one, we need robust investment. Two, we need a plan that's comprehensive, one that doesn't just focus on roads and bridges, but we also need, um, you know, electric grids, water and sewer systems, broadband, affordable housing, school construction, uh, transit. Um, we need all of that across the board uh, in a good infrastructure plan. The third one, and this gets to something we talked about earlier, um, is we need a plan that's sustainable, one that doesn't um, destroy our environment and fragile ecosystems uh, in the name of just like bulldozing new infrastructure projects. And fourth, um, we need one that's equitable, one that treats workers fairly and, and importantly, one that doesn't leave communities of color behind. Um, you know, we need to make sure that in the name of like improving our infrastructure, we're not, you know, bulldozing communities of color, 
um, or or prioritizing, um, or I should say, leaving behind, um, you know, especially rural communities uh, that need significant upgrades to their infrastructure, particularly in water and sewer, that may not be seen as a profitable venture for one of these private investors that the Trump plan wants to go after, but nonetheless is a serious, serious need for communities. And so I I think in keeping with that, um, the House Democrats have introduced a bill that is in line with a lot of the points that you just outlined. It is called House Concurrent Resolution 63, which uh, Indivisible supports as part of what is called the Million Jobs Campaign. Um, Tell us briefly about the bill. Does it conform to, uh, to what you've just talked about? Yeah, it hits a lot of those points. And what's exciting is that we're seeing... Uh, a lot of excitement around this resolution. It's got about 150 co-sponsors, um, which is a really, really big number. Wow. Um, it, keeping in mind that there are only about 190 Democrats in the whole House caucus. Um, so uh, we are approaching vast majority of Democrats on this resolution. Um, and that's great because it really means that the entire Democratic Party is coalescing around this set of principles uh, for what we want to see out of an affirmative infrastructure plan. And again, it just, um, I think, underscores the ways in which the Trump plan released this week falls short. Right. And as I mentioned, uh, this measure is being supported by Indivisible as part of the Million Jobs campaign. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So that is a, a broad coalition of uh, groups from across uh, across issue areas and ideas. Um, it is a broad group of probably about a hundred organizations or more. And it's folks like Indivisible, it's Move On, Next Gen, OFA. Uh, but then there's, you know, environmental groups like um, Defenders of Wildlife, Sierra Club, there's Labor, there's SEIU, mm. there's oh League of Conservation Voters, that's another big environmental one. I'm just sort of naming them off the top of my head. Sure. There's Color of Change, Center for Popular Democracy, AFSCME. Um, we're all working together. There's the National Education Association, so the education community, um, all working together to try and advance an infrastructure plan that works for everybody and not a scam that Trump wants to put forward that works for his hedge fund friends. So 150 Democrats so far and a large consortium of uh, groups that are aligned under the Million Jobs campaign. So controlling the narrative indeed. I I think there is a real force behind that. Uh, And in keeping with that, Indivisible is calling on members to call every Democrat in the House to support this bill. We have six Democrats here in Washington. Um, You're saying we really need to put the pressure on the Democrats here to, to get behind this if they haven't already, right? Yeah. So like I said, there's about 150 Dems on the resolution already. They're already co-sponsoring. So that's great. It's it's exactly what we want. That means that there's about 40 more that haven't signed on yet for one reason or another. Um, And the 40 that haven't signed on are kind of across. They, you know, they span the ideological spectrum of the Democratic caucus. Um, But it'll really help if we can get as close to 100 percent of the Democrats on this resolution as possible, Um, because I mentioned earlier that one of the keys um, to success on Trump care was Democratic unity. If we can get as close to 100 percent of Democrats as possible on the House resolution, it sends a strong signal 
to the Senate and what Senate Democrats should be thinking about the Trump plan. So one difference between our previous fights that we've had uh, and the infrastructure plan that I, I want to underscore for everybody because it isn't obvious is that you'll remember during Trump care and the tax scam, Republicans were using a process in the Senate called reconciliation, sure. which allowed to pass legislation with only 51 votes. Right. Much of what Trump wants to do in his infrastructure plan can't be done through reconciliation, so it's going to require 60 votes. So we can win on infrastructure without having to flip a single Republican. So this is not us looking for like a Susan Collins or a Lisa Murkowski. This is us trying to hold, you know, more moderate Democrats like Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, uh, Claire McCaskill, Heidi Heitkamp, John Tester. That batch of Democrats are really um, the key to our success here. So um, we're in a, a little bit of a different place than we were uh, on previous fights. And you're saying that if the House uh, coalition of Democrats can hold together, that it sends a strong signal to the Senate Democrats saying you guys can hold together, too. That's that's exactly right. Yep. So in pushing back against this, uh, the site uh, Indivisible has uh, you've got a couple of pretty interesting uh, ways to do it. One is a roadside rally. That's pretty self-explanatory. But the other is something called a Trump toll booth. And that sounds like fun. So uh, tell us about that. (laughs) Yeah. So we're just encouraging groups to have some fun with this. Um, And given that uh, a big part of or one big outcome of the Trump plan would be a significant increase in tolls. Um, you know, we're just asking groups to have some fun, slap a toll booth up in front of a, of a district office, your member of Congress's district office, uh, and let them know what you think about the Trump infrastructure plan. Um, the idea here is that, uh, you know, ex local government or state government doesn't have the money to repair a highway. So they partner with some private investor um, to make the repairs for that highway. But then the private investor says, yes, but now I'd like to recover my investment. So I'm going to need to toll your highway. Right. Um, That is a likely outcome of the Trump infrastructure plan. So the idea of of putting a toll booth up in front of your member of Congress's office is just to let them know uh, exactly what you think about that. Outstanding. Okay. And you can find more information about that on the Indivisible site. So I just want to shift over briefly and talk about Trump's budget. And uh, while this budget is expected to be dead on arrival and uh, and most modern presidential budgets are, I do think it sends a very clear signal uh, about what Trump is actually about. Like, uh, hey, guess what? He never had any intention of preserving programs like Medicare and Medicaid, despite what he said on the campaign trail. Uh, so we knew that this was coming, uh, especially after, as we've talked about, they passed the $1.5 trillion tax scam. Um, we knew the GOP would be looking to cut social programs to try to pay for it. In fact, you said as much on this very show. So uh, <laughs> let's look at a few of the line items. And I will briefly mention that there are huge spending increases proposed for defense and also for Trump's border wall. Uh, but I think the social programs are what's key here. We would be looking at over $300 billion in cuts to Medicaid, $213 billion to SNAP, over $500 billion in projected cuts over 10 years to Medicare. Uh, The proposal for SNAP, or what used to be known as food stamps, is particularly appalling. You've been talking about that a lot on Twitter. Uh, So for people who haven't maybe heard, tell us what's being proposed here. Yeah, this is particularly heinous. It's not just a a cut in SNAP funding, but it is an entire reimagination of the program in in a way that is um, kind of appalling. 
um, what it would do is take a portion of SNAP benefits and in, instead of just um, giving a SNAP recipient um, all of the benefits on their electronic benefits transfer card, the EBT card that they can take to a grocery store and use just as they would cash or a credit card. Um, instead, it would take a portion of their benefits and ship them a box of food instead. Um, and the government would obviously decide like what goes in this box. Um, it doesn't sound um, particularly healthy. We're talking about um, ready-to-eat cereals, pasta, peanut butter, um, canned beans and canned fruit. Um, it's very difficult to imagine how the government uh, could do this for less than it currently costs to administer, administer the SNAP program. Yeah. Um, but it also raises serious questions about why the government would want to do this. But it, to say it's paternalistic uh, is an understatement. Yeah. Uh, but also... What is particularly insulting, I, I think, about this is that um, they were selling this on the Hill as like, oh, this is like Blue Apron uh, or Snap, which like, <sighs> you know, Blue Apron is like what the Pod Save America guys like advertise on their podcast and like, right. which you, you should listen to as soon as you're done listening to the Indivisible podcast. <laughs> yes. Don't leave yet. But yeah, you listen. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um you know, it's about it's an expensive like delivery box system for people who like think think of themselves as being too busy to cook for themselves. Um, not like any sort of sustainable government run food delivery program. Um, and it's just one of you know a whole slew of proposals in the budget um, that would be terrible uh, for working families and families trying to get ahead. Um, it's a 22% cut to SNAP, but it's also a $300 billion cut to Medicaid, as you said. And by the way, the budget assumes passage of Graham Cassidy, which you'll remember was like the latest iteration of ACA repeal. Right. Um, so not giving up on that either. There's a huge cut to Medicare uh, and also a $72 billion cut to Social Security disability, which folks with disabilities rely on. Uh, it breaks Trump's promise not to touch Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Um, not that broken promises should surprise any of us. Right. But And this is all in service, by the way, to the $1.5 trillion added to the deficit uh, in tax cuts for the rich and corporations. The bill for the GOP tax scam has come due. Yeah, well, you know, Paul Ryan did say in an interview on Fox Business uh, with a straight face, I think it's fair to point out, quote, we have to fix health care if we're going to get away from this debt crisis. I, you know, I saw that. And I mean, it's just absurd. He just gave over a trillion dollars away to the wealthy and corporations in the form of huge tax cuts. And all of a sudden now he's come back to being concerned about the deficit. And I know that Indivisible is currently working on a policy response to all of this, and so I don't want to ask you to get too far ahead of that here. So uh, just before I let you go, I, I would like to talk briefly about the agenda roughly for 2018 and about what you feel like we should be focusing on right now uh, in indivisible groups across the country. Um, there's the immigration fight. There is now, as we talked about in detail, the infrastructure plan. Um, there will be a fight on the budget coming up. And of course, this is an election year. On your Twitter account, you have pinned a tweet that says, you've heard of repeal and replace. Well, here's our plan. Re uh, replace and repeal. Number one, replace Republicans in Congress. Number two, repeal the GOP tax scam. So the election is a number of months off. 
off. In the meantime, what should we be focusing on in your mind? Yeah. So, um, well, the first thing coming up is uh, congressional recess, the the February President's Day recess. It starts this Saturday. And uh, it's the one year anniversary of the recess that really put Indivisible on the map. The President's Day recess back in 2017, folks showed up to town halls. Um, they were holding their members accountable for wanting to repeal the ACA. And it set the stage uh, for putting members of Congress on notice that Indivisible was here and that we were paying attention. Uh, and and it really affected the course of that, the entire rest of that uh, healthcare fight. So we're looking at the one year anniversary of that now. So we're really hoping that folks uh, can find their their members of Congress, either at town halls or other public events. And what do we want to be talking to them about? At exactly. So what's happening in, in the Senate right now is a fight over immigration. Obviously, everyone knows uh, that uh, the DACA program uh, has been in the headlines for a number of weeks now. And we are uh, coming up soon on the March 5th arbitrary deadline that Trump has chosen to end the program. Democrats, I think, are, are fighting in Congress, are, are fighting and certainly immigration rights groups are, are fighting um, to protect dreamers before that deadline. So what's happening in the Senate now is that uh, there are a number of different amendments under consideration. Um, this is not a process that uh, is is well defined, or that Democrats have a lot of control over. Sure. Uh, but there, what's going to happen is that there are going to be a number of amendments offered, and some of these are going to be um, they're actually entire bills. And and one of them is going to be a bill that reflects the White House's immigration plan, probably introduced by Senator Grassley. Um, there are a couple other uh, amendments that might get introduced that are more bipartisan in nature. But the problem is that even the bipartisan proposals go further than uh, indivisible and immigrants' rights groups uh, find acceptable. They cross the red lines. Mm-hmm. For example, one of them is dreamers have made clear from the beginning that they won't sacrifice their parents in exchange for their own relief. And uh, the proposals that Democrats are offering um, with some of their Republican colleagues in a bipartisan way would require them um, basically to sacrifice their parents uh, in exchange for, for their own protection. So obviously that's something we want to speak out against. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. So um What's happening now, at least uh, unless thing cha- things change dramatically, uh, is that we are asking Democrats to oppose anything uh, that crosses those those red lines, uh, especially anything that requires permanent destructive changes to our immigration system in exchange for um, temporary relief or a temporary fix to DACA. Okay. And then as we talked about, there is the Trump toll booth that we can be uh, <laughs> focusing on as well. Um, and, uh, and and especially uh, effective if you're doing that while your uh, member of Congress is in uh, his or her district office. So there you go. Yep. And one more thing I should mention about the budget while we're talking about infrastructure yep. is that the budget released on the same day as the infrastructure plan makes hundreds of millions of dollars in cuts to infrastructure programs. So in case you need in case you needed any evidence that Trump wasn't really serious about improving our infrastructure, his budget cuts hundreds of millions of dollars from transportation programs. 
So there you go. Well, Chad Bolt, I, I want to uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, explain all of that. And as the the fight uh, to save social programs like Medicare, Medicaid, uh, SNAP, as that comes into focus, will you join us again and, and talk about that? Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Thanks so much, man. And we will end this week with our dose of good news. And, of course, the big good news story of the week has happened in light of the Senate taking up debate on immigration. A U.S. District Court judge for the Eastern District of New York has temporarily blocked the Trump administration from ending DACA, saying they had not offered, quote, legally adequate reasons for ending it. This is actually the second such ruling, joining with a previous ruling from a California surrogate judge, which now means the program could extend beyond the March 5th deadline. Next, on to an unlikely place for good news, the House of Representatives, where a bill just passed that is being unofficially called the hashtag MeToo bill. This would change procedures on how staffers report sexual harassment and assault. The wave of so many powerful men in D.C. losing their jobs is so profound that historians are saying the last time anything like this happened was a series of firings and resignations over the issue of slavery. And, well, we know what happened after that, so let's hope we don't go there. Uh, But the bill is on to the Senate next, and its chances are looking good. Out this way in Montana, an employee at the Montana Department of Labor opted to quit his job rather than be forced to assist ICE with deportations. And then here in Washington, Governor Jay Inslee sided with a state energy panel and rejected a permit that would have allowed for the nation's largest oil-by-rail terminal, saying that the risk of disaster is just too high. And we will stay in Washington for this week's final bit of good news. Nine states, including Washington and Oregon, have announced they are forming a coalition to help pass carbon pricing at the local level as a way to push back in the face of federal inaction on climate. Now, we recorded this show as the news of the school shooting in Florida was coming in. And while I know this is our dose of good news, uh, we do want to acknowledge that, uh, to acknowledge the loss of lives and the families who are grieving right now. Uh, Our hearts are with you. And it goes without saying that the most profound way that we can honor those lost lives would be to push our legislators to see their way clear past their fear of the NRA to finally, finally enact reasonable gun legislation in this country. And that will do it for this week's show. As always, for links to all the stuff we talked about today, do head over to IndivisiblePodcast.org if you are not there already and subscribe if you have not yet to get the show delivered to your inbox. Please do keep the emails and the tweets coming. The email is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to my guests, Deray McKesson and Chad Bolt. My special thanks to Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Emily Phelps. And as always, thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.